we were discussing um, the importance of lineage. Yes. And is that essential to the tradition that you can't, you could say, climb the mountain, if we use that analogy, Mm -hmm. without a guide, someone who's been to the top and can take you by the hand. Right. Because you get in your own way, you know. Because there is an apparent contradiction between the knower and the known, right? So, because the knower is the same as that which is to be known. The subject is really the object which has to know itself without being objectified. And so what to do here? We are at odds. So therefore the guide is needed because the subject comes in its own way because the subject is rife with conclusions about itself, its own limitations, so-called limitations, its own mortality, it's, it's, it's rife with tears and fears. And it's convinced that this is what it is. And so that subject can never know itself. Even though we say, physician, heal thyself. We never say, Vedantin, you know, know thyself by yourself. No. Mm. This yourself business is not, is just in fact decried upon. You know, we have an orange festival going on in, in central India right now. Whenever the, you know, astrologically Jupiter is in Leo or aspected by the, the house of uh, the constellation of Leo, we have this Kumbha Mela, which is this orange festival where all the people in orange gather to take a dip in the, in the river. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you take the dip in the morning and evening, what do you do the rest of the day? You visit one another. That's what you do. The, the people who are, you know, they, they visit senior uh, saints and holy people so that you can sit with the holy people and otherwise you have a good time, you have satsang. And then when you go to visit somebody, let's say you visit somebody new, you don't ask them what is your name. They're not interested in your name. They're not interested in what you do, how many disciples you have, what is your following, you know, how many, uh, what, are, what, do you, what is your Google ranking. They're not interested in all that. They're interested in one thing and one thing alone. Who is your teacher? What's your lineage? They're not interested in your name. And if you have the temerity to sit there and say, I got this knowledge just by myself, they will just, you know, be very polite, but you will not get any more visitors at all. They're not interested in a knowledge that mm-hmm. just is, you know, one is considered an upstart. And that's interesting because like you pointed out earlier when we were talking, that America is all about choice. And yes. we, keep, we think we yes. have this mantra that that's what will bring you happiness yes. is you can choose whether your car is red or green or blue and you can choose over 30 different brands of soda to drink and this is actually what's going to make me happier but it's interesting in a tradition I hear what you're saying and also you could say within within the Sufi tradition that the essence of it is actually submission that to to you could say lose to a certain extent your the illusion of your individuated I selfhood and one of the most beautiful ways to do that is to you could say renounce choice and submit to a regiment to a tradition to a lineage which organizes your time right you're going to wake up and you're going to say this prayer and then you're going to do this uh 
vicar or this mantra and then you are going to do this it really structures and organizes and then once you you're going to memorize this text and then you're going to memorize this text and it really is a track it puts you on a track so it frees you up from having to i don't know choose and because i mean i think that really resonates for a lot of americans seekers and even for myself I, i grew up in a pretty much secular family so i looked at religion like a menu you know, like, like, and so I was like, oh, that I'll take some from there and some from there and some from there, like a buffet. And I think a lot of Americans, especially liberal West Coast cities, they're coming at it from that. Yes. But they don't necessarily see the freedom yes. in submission. In choicelessness. Yeah. And there is a great freedom in choicelessness. And what you said was beautifully put, because that is a regimen and it's a discipline. You know, it's, it's a... Uh, it's not supposed to be. The ashram is not a zenitentiary. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's not a zenitentiary where you are told what to do and you're a prisoner, so to speak, a spiritual prisoner. No. It's, uh, you know, one is a prisoner of one's choices. And the choices are really oppressive. And so really speaking, so when uh, the choices are... It's not that the choices are made for you. You're encouraged to kind of have a minimalistic life. So you're only reproducing because food is provided and you know you have to certain tasks to keep up the you know keep up the ashram. Maybe somebody is weeding and somebody's gardening, somebody's cooking, whatever it is. And that is to keep the mind you know in in a kind of a single tracked focus so that one is able to see the benefit in that because what we lack is discipline two things that that puts us off that puts especially youngsters and you know especially people in the west off of gurus and lineages two things one is the rebellion against discipline one hates to be disciplined because one feels like one is under the power of another and this is one is smarting when you when one is told that you know, when to wake up and whatnot. And every American youngster that I know can't wait to leave home, you know. Oh my God, when am I going to be 18? When am I going to be free? When am I going to not have to listen to when I should come home and whatnot? But that freedom is actually dangerous because the, when that, when the choices, when the desires are not trimmed and taken care of, they rule you. You don't manage them anymore. You think you are free, but you are a slave. To the, you are enslaved by the desires. So that's the first problem with the Westerners and with the uh, the, the mindset of the youngsters, no matter where they are in the East or the West, the, the youth. The second problem is issues with authority. You know, because I'm smarting against, you know, the parents in a certain way. You know, I'm, I have rejected them. And in, in their rejection, I have learn to define who the I is. And usually that happens with, you know, especially in the West with the rejection of everything that I was taught and those who taught me that because I have discovered them to be fallible, which mm. is actually a wonderful thing. <laughs> it's a great thing to discover that the parents are fallible because we say that that's the first step of spirituality because you have now chosen in a way, even without your knowing it, to know the infallible. To seek the mother and the father, that is infallible. To seek in the infallible the mother and the father is much safer than trying to make your local mother and father infallible. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So these authority issues, when one was hurt as a child, whether it's abandonment, neglect, these are all subjective issues. Because every parent is infallible. How much can they be with the child? 
the child has separation anxiety mother goes to the bathroom the child feels abandoned this is what the whole thing is and so therefore this authority issue is a very very big in impediment in seeking a teacher and a lineage because you know uh, because actually there are two people going to the teacher one is the inner child the inner brat if i may call it and the inner brat wants to be mothered wants to be fathered depending on whether the teacher is masculine or feminine wants a parent and the adult wants a teacher this is the problem so actually ironically for the knowledge of oneness the two people are approaching the same teacher you know one is the inner child the truncated body of frozen needs that can never be fulfilled and the other one is the rational adult who says okay something is wrong with the means that i'm deploying and the ends and so i have to i need help here so so therefore the the tradition has a way of managing the inner child the inner child is told to cook and weed and clean and keep busy and the adult is taught simultaneously mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, you mentioned an interesting thing and those are those are definitely kind of hallmarks of of America in the sense that and you could almost say it's like as a civilization with the being, you know, the west western Europe being Christian for 2000 years and then this real you know that was part of the doctrine is the pope is infallible representative of Jesus and that was you know the break with the reformation and the whole you know coming into the modern world and the rejection of the church is this kind of realization no it's there is fallible they're human beings and and this distrust of authority in general and specifically of religious authority and priesthood and yes. hierarchy is just part and parcel of what it means to be a westerner at this point um Is it true to say that there's no like official hierarchy of priesthood within the Hindu tradition? That no. There's various schools, but there's no. No, no. There are official. You know, there are certain uh, leaders that you know, like as uh, you know, uh, all religious leaders are equal. As to put George Orwell differently, but some religious leaders are more equal mm-hmm. than others because we have, we have you know very old traditions. Mm-hmm. You know we have traditions. You know even within the Vedanta there is a tradition of dualism and a qualified mm-hmm. dualism and you know dualism but not dualism and all these things. There are several uh, you know ways of looking at the same text and these teachers go from a long long way. and so adhikara for example mm-hmm. who um, established four ashrams long back you know the, the everything in india is bc you know we don't have anything ad mm-hmm. you know so this uh, um, so these ashrams you know the, the pontiffs when they talk you know they have a greater standing than if somebody else would be you know talking about something so there are hierarchies and uh, my teacher uh, has been credited with the formation of the acharya sabha a kind of a consortium of all the teachers from these various traditions mm-hmm. lineages and sometimes they won't even sit with one another but mm-hmm. you know and, and some of them said i have to be sitting on top mm-hmm. and in fact this is what will be erected for the first meeting 
uh, a, a nice plank was erected where all the religious leaders were on top and we sat on the bottom <laughs> because we said it's not about where we sit, we just need to have a conversation. And then by the second meeting, you know, everybody understood. So everybody came together from a spirit of knowledge and service. But those hierarchies are there. Wherever there are human beings, there are hierarchies. Yes. Right, but for instance, from within the Islamic tradition, like you, you see a lot of people say, well, why doesn't somebody just excommunicate Osama bin Laden? Yes. But that's a fundamental, fundamentally kind of uh, Western Christian concept yeah. because there is no established authority figure, Pope, for instance. And there actually is no priesthood or no monkhood yes. within the Islamic tradition. But there are ulemas. There are ulemas. So each, you know, you could say region or different schools of thought yeah. developed, you know, schools and traditions and courses of study and hierarchy. Yes. But again, it's kind of a mishmash, you could say. Yes, you can say that. You know, like somebody said, do you have a pope mm -hmm. in another mm -hmm. such interview? And I said, we have many popes. Every Hindu is a pope. You know, exactly. <laughs> because they have things to say. They are they understand. Maybe a pope in their own house, but they are popes. exactly. And one way, and another way to say there's no priest is to say everyone's a priest. Yes. Because in the sense of even an imam is someone who just leads the prayer and keeps time. Yes. In a sense, and that's what really I think draws a lot of people to Islam uh, that that convert is this emphasis on the no intermediary between you and the, the creator, and the you know, and the ultimate. No, correct. But I, I do think that, you know, in the Abrahamic traditions, there is a certain, uh, uh, even though Islam is, you could, you could say that it's a little bit of an aberration or an exception, mm -hmm. but there are still certain people or certain kinds of leaders who hold the strings, you know. Like, for example, you know, the whole thing with the fatwa, so somebody who can write a fatwa and send someone like Salman Rushdie underground for the rest of his life, you know, uh, you know that's a big thing. We don't have that in, in, in our tradition. You know, we don't have one person, if one person discredits somebody, you know, it doesn't really, it only has meaning and standing for that person in that community, perhaps in a small little thing, but it's not, that person is not discredited by everybody. So we don't have that unified... Uh, you know, voice in that sort of a sense of like this is what I mean. Even though it's a, a site of contestation, what it means to be Muslim, you you know, depending on who you speak to, you will get many answers. But still, there is a, some kind of a transnational identity as far as Islam is concerned, where in this transnational identity there are certain rules that are followed. That, is, that are there, so it is a, it's a, you know, it can even be against the laws of a particular nation, but this transnational identity is very important. Mm. We don't have that, mm. you know, because uh, our identity is based, it's very interesting, because there's a lot of these days, it's this whole identity question, who is a Hindu, you know, even mm -hmm. the Hindu doesn't know, because it's just, it's like a, you know, we, we, we identify ourselves based on uh, so many different things. It's not, you know, it's not some kind of an established criteria and that criteria has not been established by some authority or, uh, you know, something in power. I've heard yeah. even people say that the idea of Hinduism is kind of an imposition by the 
by the British because they're like, we have a religion. There's a religion. Yeah. They saw these different practices and yeah. beliefs and really a plethora. And they were like, we need a word for it. But in a sense that what is called Hinduism is a myriad of practices and beliefs and schools and texts. There's no centralized text necessarily. No, I will not say that. Mm. But, you know, it's true that it's an imposition and it's a distortion of one's identity. If I were uh, asked to define Hinduism, I would say it has a view and a way of life, a prescribed way of life that is in keeping with that view or that goal. So the view is what we studied today, the Upanishads or what they mean, Vedanta, the what comes at the end of the Veda, that you are one that with everything. There is nothing other than you, that's the view. It's not easy to assimilate, so hmm. therefore I need a way of life in keeping with that view. And that's where the prayer, the worship, the meditation, a life of, uh, you know, managing the desires, all that comes is the, the way of life. So the practices and the beliefs come under the way of life. Mm -hmm. The vision is same. Even you ask a person who is a dualist, who, who says God and me are separate. What is? What do you want? I want to be one with God. Mm -hmm. And I just believe I have to go to heaven in order to do that. That's what you ask the qualified dualist, what do you want? I want to be one. So, and we say you are not, you know, you are none other than that. So what is nice about Vedanta is that it accommodates everything. It does not, you know, it does not um, discredit the dualist because it's a point of view, it's valid. Because I sense that separation. I have to relate to this, this one who is the truth of me, who is, you know, who seems away from me. It doesn't discredit worship. It doesn't discredit bhakti. It doesn't discredit service. It doesn't discredit any practice or belief. It has the ability to accommodate all and transcend them also. So that's the thing. So that's why it's not an organized religion. But neither would I say it's a mishmash of mm -hmm. just a, a compendium of, of beliefs and practices that, that don't speak to one another. You know, because it, they all speak to this vision. Yeah, exactly how you defined it is pretty much how I define Islam as well, personally. And personally, it's interesting yes. because I was I was in the, the UK and I was speaking to one of the uh, top Muslim scholars there. Uh, his name is Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad. And he asked me about my journey and I said, well, you know, I never thought I'd be part of an organized religion. And he said, well, it's not that organized. Which is, is the British humor, in a sense, saying, yes. like, one, Muslims are super disorganized, look at them. But also, this in the sense that it really, it, it's, a, it's a paradigm. La ilaha illallah. There is no God but God. There is no reality but the ultimate reality. And it's a series of uh, uh, teachings to realize that. And as the Sufis say, people only differ in their realization of la ilaha illallah. That's it. We only differ in realization of the oneness of realization the and interpretation. Mm. That's what the mm. whole thing mm. is. Correct, because you know, Sufism is not an organized religion. Islam is, mm -hmm. and Sufism is what, according to me, it is the the wisdom portion where it would have taken a natural progression depending on the human goal of wanting to be complete. That is what it is. But it's not for everybody. And everybody right. will not get there. And that's another piece that, from sitting with you and hearing you talk about um, the Vedas, 
and then the Vedanta at the end of the Vedas. Yes. So the Vedas being the, almost you could say, the rules and regulations, the transaction, the devotional aspect. Yes. And then the Vedanta coming at the end being the deeper, you could say, yes. philosophical, ultimate yes. tradition. And it's amazing because within Sufism, you have this idea of the Sharia and the Hakika. Yes. The Sharia is the sacred law, which all Muslims try to follow. And the Sufis don't say, oh, we'll do away with that. It's not important. They say, no, that's the path to get to Hakika, which is the ultimate reality. reality. Yes. And so there's even the idea that they don't contradict each other, but you have to... They have their own planes of existence. Yes. Absolutely. So is that it's a yeah. similar concept? Yeah. You, you outgrow the one in order to, you know, reach the, quote-unquote, reach the other, which is never away from you. So it's like a child learning to bicycle. So the parents will put some training wheels so that it learn, the child knows how to steer. It learns how to go and negotiate the traffic. Once it has the balance, the wheels are removed. So as long, you know, in order to grow in this life spiritually, I need balance. And the balance, first of all, includes not, you know, getting completely disillusioned with uh, failure and getting so ecstatic at success that I'm not able to manage myself. The balance is learning to manage my desire, my gamut of choices, my activities and the results therein. So once I learn to balance, whether you talk of karma, whether all this become a model. A model is just like the model in physics. It's pointing to something else. Mm. And it's dismantled, you know, once it serves its purpose. So same thing. The first portion is there to train the, of the Veda, trains the human being, trains the mind, trains the, uh, the emotions. And then the final portion speaks to this trained and disciplined mind and body and it, it then only the person is qualified that qualification is called adhikari adhikara means that prerequisites have to be there and so we cannot do away with the first portion and later on we need not do away with the first portion because we are not fighting against this that's what i mean by vedanta accommodates everything there is a place for everything we don't disagree with anybody we say your point of view is valid. The problem is that you are confusing the point of view for the view. That cannot be done. Those are two different things. Yeah. When the view is clear to me, I can appreciate a point of view. But if I mistake the view for the point of view, then I, that's not the answer. Yeah, that's beautiful. And... Later, at certain periods within Islam, there was some tension between this esoteric haqiqa and the, the ulama, the rulers of the law, you could say. And it's interesting, Rumi has an amazing story, one of my favorite, where he says uh, there was a ferryman who takes people across the river in his boat. And uh, a sheikh comes, you know, outward. A scholar of the outward comes and he says, "We take me across the river," and he says, "Sure." And so they set off across the river. And as they start discussing, the sheikh sees that this man, this ferryman, has very poor speech. 
very broken sentences, very poor grammar. Unlettered. Yeah. yeah, he's unlettered. And he said, what is it with you? Didn't you ever go to school? Didn't you ever study? And the, the ferryman said, no, I had to drop out when I was very young so I could work to feed my family and these type of things. And the sheikh said, then you've wasted half your life. So they continue on and they get to about the center of the river and the boat starts to sink. Springs a leak. It starts to sink. And the ferryman says to the sheikh, he says, did you ever learn to swim? And he said, no, I've been studying and reading all my texts. I don't have time to learn to swim. And he said, then you've wasted all of your life. and you know it gets at this deeper reality which is that the spiritual path the tradition itself and the books and the rules it's really supposed to get you from one side of the river to the other and to not drown in the river of this world and the physical body and desires and pleasures and the reality is that it doesn't take a lot of knowledge book and learning to to do that in fact many of the greatest masters i'm sure in, in all traditions were pretty much unlettered very simple people um but it does take a lot of it would take some realization of what you learned and experiencing and um Another story that's really kind of central to the Sufi tradition is that there's someone named Mansur al-Hallaj who was an early Sufi a few hundred years after the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and he was executed for blasphemy mm-hmm. in Baghdad because he said, Ana al-Haq, which means I am al-Haq, which is one of the divine names, which means the ultimate reality or the truth itself. Yes. So I am the supreme reality. And Islam has this interesting tension between this emphasis on the oneness of God, the transcendent source of all being, because the Prophet Muhammad lived at a time where there was this decadent uh, idol worship, where the, the stone figures themselves had become detached from any ult- the God. And people were basically had this... Um, this worship and this belief that this God could help me defeat that person. And it's, it became this decadent spirituality, this decadent religion. So this emphasis on the transcendence of the Supreme. So this to say, I am God or God is in this or God is in that is seen as uh, transgressing the foundational principle of Islam from an outward perspective. And it's interesting because a contemporary of Halaj was someone named uh, Imam al-Junaid, who is also known as, as one of the great early Sufis. But he had a practice where when he was speaking about the esoteric secrets of religion, he would, with his disciples, he would lock the door and put the key under his thigh. And only then would he speak about it. And if there was a visitor or a guest, he would only speak about the outward surface matters of religion. And the story goes that when Halaj was going to be executed, Imam Junaid didn't come to his defense. because It's as if he was saying, this is what you get from te- for telling the secrets. Because not everyone's ready to hear them. And if I were to defend you, they would just kill me too. But the later Sufis 
um, always have deference and love for Halaj. So Rumi talks about him, all the great poets and Sufis, they talk about him, but they say he had attained the state of fana. So within the Sufism, there's fana and baqa, yes. which is very similar to a term you were discussing earlier today, which is basically translated as annihilation. Yes. When you're, you could say that lower self, that lower I mm -hmm. is annihilated. And you, and so what they say is that Halaj was gone. And Halaj has a poem where he says, and you mentioned the cloak earlier, he said, yes. the only thing in my cloak is Allah. Yes. Which is a shocking statement from, from an outward perspective. But right. what he's saying is that this individuated selfhood is gone. And, and, yes. and I've just become a vessel for the ultimate. That's true. The main difference between Sufism as a movement and Vedanta is that in Vedanta, in, in what we call the Dharma, the Hindu Dharma, we have, the, we have that sanction. In fact, it's not just the sanction. It's the ultimate goal of every human being to realize or understand this the oneself as the whole. So we are not worried about apostasy. We are not worried about, you know, going against anything. So this is a big difference because this is something, and in fact, those who are renunciants are supported by, the, by everybody else because, you know, if they see a renunciant in India, sadhu. they say, sadhu. asadhu, yes, that asadhu is worshipped or revered because you are doing what I cannot do right now because I have a family. You are doing this. On, even on my behalf mm -hmm. right now. So that is what the whole thing is. So there is a, there is a, in, in, uh, in the dharma, there is a stream that is all going towards the same destination. We haven't had to, you know, pick ourselves out in opposition to that. But having said that, this is not often understood. So even Adi Shankara, he had to have a lot of dialogues called Vada, debates, with the people who thought that the first portion was everything. Mm. And when he defeated them in the debate, you know this is the rule of the debate, that if you are de de defeated, you become the disciple of the other. Mm. And so he went around, you know, defeating the people, the, the prominent uh, proponents of the first portion of the Veda as everything called Purva Mimamsakas you know, who, who were wedded to the first portion of the Vedas. And then when when they understood the folly of their ways, they became the proponents of Vedanta. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have the exact same thing. So you'll find many of the greatest scholars of, of Sharia, of Quranic commentary, of the Hadith science, people like uh, Imam Ghazali, or people like... Uh, people like Abdul Qadir Jilani, they were the greatest exoteric scholars, but they were also the greatest Sufis. Mm -hmm. And they would have tension sometimes with those individuals who were scholars of the outward, but not the inward. But the tension in the modern world is different than, because really the, the, there, was a, there was a compromise that developed within, within Islam, definitely within the Shia world, which is, uh, you know, this, the esoteric is woven in. But even within the Sunni world, which some scholars call like the late tent of Sunni Islam, which is like the four madhabs in Sharia, then Ashari in theology, and then the various Sufi tariqahs. So it was woven in. And it's only with kind of these modernist movements, which are trying to 
kick out the spirituality mm-hmm. um, when they're kind of reacting against the domination from Europe. And what is it? Why are we being dominated? Oh, it must be because of these practices that seeped in, or it must be because of um, these superstitious, um, you know, belief in the, the spiritual masters that they have power. So we'll kind of try to rationalize the religion in which you're having this. But yeah, that's, that's, um, and so you, you mentioned that the Vedas, so is there, you, so you could say there are within, is there, so there isn't a tension between those who say like the Vedas are all there is. And then the Vedanta, the people that affirm the esoteric core. No, of the tradition. and we don't even call it esoteric mm-hmm. because it's obvious, mm-hmm. you know, it's obvious and it is, even if it's not obvious, it is sought after. Mm-hmm. Even if I don't know, I'm seeking, mm-hmm. I'm seeking. And there's nothing mysterious about it because it's, it's taught with certain very specific and tangible pedagogies. This is one of the paradoxes of Vedanta where the intangible is taught through tangible means and non-duality is taught through the teacher-student relationship which is the last frontier of duality, so to speak. So this is one of the paradoxes. So we won't say that, you know, people don't know this. People know this and they want this. But sometimes people are not in a position to understand it completely or reprioritize their lives because they are still growing. Mm And we say that growing takes a long time. It can take lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So in this life, I, you know, if I'm born as a human being, let's say, I could only do this much. I could only just manage to make peace with my family. I could manage to hold a job. I could manage to, I didn't even make it to the temple. I could just manage to, you know, keep my temper under control and do the right thing. You know, finished, gone, one life gone. Next life, I evolved a little more, little more. So those who are, quote-unquote, stuck in the first portion of the Vedas, uh, you know, from the standpoint of Vedanta, we bless them and Mm -hmm. leave them alone. We don't try to, quote-unquote, convert because you can't convert someone to yourself. You are already who you are. And in fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, in the third chapter, there is an injunction. Lord Krishna says to Arjuna, Na buddhi bhedam janayet ajnaninam karma sanginam. So if you encounter people who are wedded to action and who are wedded to just reproducing this life, don't judge them Mm. and don't, you know, mislead them. Don't say, oh, you need Vedanta, you don't do this because they'll be neither here nor there. They will be lost. So because this is not outside of this, this is, they're all growing to it. You grow to actionlessness through action. One more paradox. Mm. You grow into it. And, And we have to be patient and we have to just allow things to be and neither is there flaunting of some kind of a superior knowledge because you know one understands and one is compassionate so in a traditional Indian society if one felt the impetus or the desire to study that then they, they would know where the masters were or they would, and then they would approach yes. the study. Yes, they would know when the, where the masters were, they would approach the study. But here also a certain element of choice, quote-unquote, choice is involved because that's why the masters come in various upadhis, body, mind, sense complexes of the master also matters. 
because if someone has a severe mother issue they will not be inclined to go to a female teacher because you are fighting with it all the time <laughs> then no teaching will come similarly if you have a severe father issue you would be more inclined to be attracted to a teacher in a female body so this is just a container but in the beginning for the seeking student it's important you know how the teacher teaches and all these things you know what pedagogies are used and sometimes people i know won't go to a teacher if unless they are strict they want the teacher to be strict sit down get up don't do this then only they will feel like they're being taught and if somebody is laughing and talking and joking they will not be attracted to that and sometimes it's the vice versa you know they want the teacher to be a friend or friendly if not a friend so it's like that you know so it's like you know one more paradox is that in order to learn to manage my desires you know there is a certain seeming choice of the masters and the masters we can see through the lineage somebody who is well taught you know we don't worry about whether the person is in the process of knowing or already knows if they are well taught they will not misguide you the lineage becomes so important so important that's beautiful Yeah. Absolutely. The same with the Sufi paths, you know, each tradition has to have a link all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam for it to be valid. And it's interesting, I'm really interested in in this idea of the Kali Yuga and this idea because in the modern west and we spoke earlier about new age tradition, they take you know the kind of dogma unquestioned assumptions of the modern world is that we're progressing we're advancing and in certain scientific and medical ways sure perhaps but it's this unquestioned assumption that we're advancing and new age spirituality tends to take that too they tend to be like you know they're reheating and microwaving ancient truths and trying to do away with the whole edifice of tradition often the discipline and the method which leads to these ultimate realities and then there's this belief that we're going to all be enlightened and we're entering this most enlightened age but what i find um and i'll speak from within the islamic tradition there's this idea that actually you know there's a spiritual de-evolution over time and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said the best generation is my generation and then the generation and then the next generation so this idea of each generation has this devolution and then there's also the idea of renewal that every 100 years a, a renewer will come and there's periods of it's it's a slope it's not just all downhill there's peaks and valleys but the general trajectory um is is down yeah. and the kali yuga fascinates me in the mm. sense that mm. i don't understand it 100% but i'm interested in in that this yeah. idea of time and yeah for us time is neither linear nor cyclical in that sense it's more of a pendular understanding of time just like the pendulum moves mm-hmm. so you have you know it is represented by the metaphor of a bull that's standing on four legs 
Bull is a dharma bull. So the dharma is, is the embodiment of everything that is right and solid like a bull. It stands on its four feet. That is called Satya Yuga. Where, uh, you know, you could keep a pot of gold on the middle of the road and nobody would take it because it did not belong to them. But where the dharma is reigning high. Then you have, you know, Treta Yuga, where one of the legs of the bull is gone, you know. So this is a slightly wobbly three-legged bull where dharma is there but you know there is also like the seeds have come in and then you know then you have dwapara yuga two-legged bull you know and each yuga it's not just also about the reigning dharma and the regeneration but it is uh, also about certain specific qualities like in the dwapara yuga even though the bull is standing on two legs it has other things like it. People knew how to. People know in this time how to read minds, telekinesis, mm. and like what's happening right now with you know information at our fingertips, Google, all these things. You know, sending email and receiving it, and you know SMS and all these things. These are characteristics of Dwapara Yuga actually. And then Kali Yuga, one-legged bull, almost falling off. There is really no dharma. It has to be, the bull is on CPR. It has constantly, it has to be revived. It's probably on a ventilator in the last stages of Kali Yuga. And, uh, you know, and then, but it re renovates itself. Because from Kali, you can't go to Sat. That's why I said it's not cyclical. Mm -hmm. You from can't Kali, go to the worst to the best. No, so <laughs> you have to go back from Kali mm -hmm. to Dwapara to Treta to Sat. Mm -hmm. Sat, Treta, Dwapara, Kali. So, in fact, it's all from the standpoint of Kali Yuga, which is 436,000 years. Mm. And then you make that two times and that is Dwapara Yuga. That's why it's called Dwa, meaning two. You make that three times. You multiply 436 into three, that is Treta Yuga. You multiply 436,000 into four, that is Satya Yuga. So, Kali Yuga is a little blip in time. It's a little, you know, bump in time. So we are not worried about it, but you know, even though it's horrendous, if you start looking at the the Puranic, you know, uh, renditions of what all happens and how demoralized everybody gets and how far away from dharma everybody is, uh, you know, we are discussing Vedanta here, right? So it can't be that bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the description of the Kali Yuga versus the what's the bad? What's the first? Sat Satya Yoga. Satya Yoga. Yeah. Uh, Description that I read was that Kali Yuga is like materialism, Correct. corruption, Correct. darkness, spiritual yes. depravity. Yes. Whereas the Satya Yoga yes. is uh, everyone, basically, it is like a paradise. Opposite. Opposite. It's like pure, yeah. enlightened beings yes. with honesty and virtue and generosity and kindness yes. and just. It's like the garden. Yes. Yeah. But there is no banishment. Mm. Yeah. There is no banishment and, the, and there is also no trying to return to that. Mm. It just is. Satya Yuga is. It degenerates. Now we are here. So could you say though that from a certain standpoint though that's a state or that that's a metaphor for the human potentialities that we can be in the lowest, darkest, most selfish material material blinded or we can because in a sense like for the Sufis they would always say that the the, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and the, and the, the dunya the lower realm the lila right the yeah. 
uh, I forget the other term you use for the world, the but jagat, jagat, yeah, yes. is these are potentialities within us. Like yeah. we can be in the garden, and in fact, we still are in the garden. We're just not awake we're not to it. Understanding it, yeah, we're not awake to it. We we'll never say that we were banished. The agnana. You know, the, the self-ignorance, if there is any banishment, if you want to put it on that metaphor, it's the self-ignorance. I am not awake to myself. That's really what it is. So there is no banishment and there is no ideal, there is no collective ideal state. Because this is the, this is the Abrahamic tradition's view that there is this collective ideal elevated state that everybody is going to reach. For us, moksha is individual. It has it's an individual pursuit, like dharma, like artha, like kama, like you know, righteousness, security, pleasure. It is it is an individual pursuit. And yes, the age you live in, perhaps it's easier. You know, perhaps in Satya Yuga, if one studied Vedanta, maybe three, four classes were enough. And in Kali Yuga, you need a lifetime of teaching because there are, you know, the as you say, the veil is very thick you know, or the, the ignorance is very much entrenched. So the era in, one, in which one lives, just like one's own, uh, you know, like one's own country, like it's much easier, easier to pursue this knowledge in India rather than here, it's difficult. So the Kali Yuga is like that. So it's a, it's a where the odds are stacked against you, but it's still you have to pursue and make that U-turn to get back to yourself. So it's not some kind of a collective you know, elevation and repatriation of humanity into some kind of an ideal state. Because that mm -hmm. ideal state is right here, right now. It's accessible to you if you desire it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's interesting in the in the Quranic narrative of Adam and Eve, there, there's like some, you could say, almost small differences than the, the biblical, but mm -hmm. it, they they result in some very huge differences so in some sense what you said is actually closer to the Quranic articulation because Adam and Eve first of all it wasn't Eve's fault <laughs> Eve didn't tempt Adam they both were you know they both you could say went astray but even there it's not seen as a sin it's seen as forgetfulness so they forgot. And then they said, oh, I forgot. And it was almost as if, okay, now you're ready to go to the next portion because you've, you've, you've articulated your first choice. Yes. Your first individual choice. So now this is this portion of the journey. But it's not in some like negative sense. It's actually like this is necessary for your soul on this journey. And... I will send messengers. I will send means to remember. Yes. To, to every human collectivity. Yes. I will, se I will send methods and means. And from the Islamic perspective, these are the various religions that, you know. That came they, forth. Hmm. Yeah, I would, uh, I would be careful to not agree with that. Because from the ontological standpoint, mm -hmm. there are two problems from where Vedanta is concerned. Mm -hmm. One is that the ideal state cannot be a location, you know. Mm -hmm. If it's a location, then it is within space and time. So the whole garden of Eden and banishment, this, this comes into this ontological problem of location. Because, you know, we are talking of Brahman, 
in which everything is as though located. So that Brahman itself cannot have a location, you know. And uh, so that is one problem. The other problem is is this uh, uh, this whole uh, engagement with this getting back to that state or forgetting what you said about forgetting. So the ontologically speaking, from where we stand, Vedanta wise, it's not about forgetting, you know, because if it is about forgetting, then what stops me from forgetting again? Then I will say I've had moksha for half an hour and as, as soon as I, you know, my mind started to age, then I forgot I had moksha. This has nothing to do with the mind. In fact, it's a knowledge that happens in the mind, but the mind is not an agent of this knowledge. This is very important. It's a knowledge that happens in the mind, but not by the mind. The mind is a, uh, is a, is here I can use the word and as though location for this knowledge because all knowledge takes place in the intellect but the intellect is not the agent of the knowledge so it's we don't say it's forgetting and the forgetting or the so could even if we make a stretch and compare forgetting with self-ignorance mm -hmm. self-ignorance cannot have a beginning because if it has a beginning then that means what was Previously there was knowledge and then it deteriorated into ignorance and then it's replaced with knowledge and then it deteriorates into ignorance. Mm -hmm. No. For us, ignorance has no beginning but it has an end. Mm -hmm. That's ontologically speaking, those are the differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would not say Vedanta is exactly the Quranic uh, rendition mm -hmm. of uh, Garden of Eden and all. I mean, those are all rife with a lot of... I'm, I'm myself very interested in that because mm -hmm. I, I have been uh, giving two or three times talks on Jesus and Vedanta and Bible and Vedanta. Mm -hmm. So, but of course, I'll, I'll be the first one to say that that's like my own Vedantic view of the Bible. You sure, know? of course. And, and I see a lot of possibilities and I see a lot of, you know, like you, I am joyous to see those possibilities. In the beginning, there was word, there was knowledge, pramana. The word was with God, nay, word was God. Mm -hmm. And God created this world out of nothing, and we have to put a small else, yeah, mm -hmm. not out of nothing, nothing else other than mm -hmm. itself. Yeah, because yeah, even your critique of that narrative, yes. I would say, um, I don't actually disagree with in the sense that if we're talking about a realm, uh beyond or before time and without space yes. it's necessary to speak about it using symbols otherwise we have nothing we can even say about right. it so you know like the foundation of, of western civilization is uh, Plato's cave allegory which is beautiful yes. I remember the day my teacher told it to me in seventh grade I don't remember anything else from in seventh grade but this one story that one day because it just clicked this is the reality this is us, you know, that the, the allegory is that there's people born in a cave and they're staring at the wall of the cave and they've lived their whole life there and they're basically chained. There's yokes around their neck so they can't turn left or right or anything. And all they see is the shadows play on the wall mm. of the cave. Mm. But, and that's all they know. They think that's reality. But at the other end of the cave... There's an opening, and that's where the light's coming through. And playing the shadows. And playing the shadows. But they don't know that. They can't see that. Yes. So in the allegory, says, say one individual all of a sudden is free and can stand up and can move around and can turn his head. Naturally, after he looks around, he's going to go towards the light. Yes. And as he 
exits the cave, the first thing is going to be disoriented. Where am I? It's so bright. You can't see. You have to adjust. But then as his eyes adjust, he's going to see there's a blue sky and there's infinite space compared to this little cave. And there's all of this foliage and green and color and light and beauty. And it's amazing. And naturally, after exploring a bit, he's going to want to return to his people in the cave and tell them. And, you know, in the allegory, he tries to tell his people. And first, they, they're confused. They just don't understand what he's saying because they have no reference point for it. And then eventually, they rebel against him. They start to hate him because he's challenging what they're holding on to, and that's all they know. And so it's seen as, so in that sense, you know, the truth of, 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 of these stories within the various traditions is that they're, see, that's the thing about symbols, or we say myths. myths we yes. say, oh, it's just a myth in, in common parlance, meaning it's not true. But the reality is that, no, a myth is speaking about a higher level of reality. It's more true than anything in this world, but... You have to use symbolism in certain circumstances to get at realities which our sense perception, our mind-body-sense complex, as you say, has no reference point for. Absolutely. So in that sense, because another allegory, one of the most beautiful ones that Rumi starts his Masnavi with, is he says, listen to the sound of the reed as it tells a tale, complaining of its separation. Anything that's been severed from its source yearns the moment of return. And the analogy, the allegory he's using is the reed that goes in the river and it's cut and it's carted off. And then the flute maker, he carves the holes in it and then it's taken to the gathering of the dervishes and in their gathering of zikr of remembrance, they play the flute and beat the drums. And the reed flute has this sound which is beautiful, but it's also sad. Melancholic. It's, it's, it's exactly. And it's woven in and it almost sounds human. It sounds like it's crying. And so Rumi's saying, listen to the sound of the reed. It tells a tale. It's teaching you something, just like everything else in this world. It's telling you something and it's telling you that it wants to go home. Yes. To the riverbed. And of course, that's an analogy for the human state. Correct. That we are from, in the Quranic articulation, the plane of Alastu Birabikum, when we were all in the divine presence and we were all in complete harmony and peace and knowledge and witnessing and understanding and wholeness. Yes. And then we were placed in this realm. And again, like then, again, it's just timelessness. So yes. it's. Um, and so here we are in this realm. And each human being is yearning for that wholeness, that realm, that place without place. And uh, that's the whole human condition. So some people are, are, you know, they're getting drunk right now in a bar, but that's really their attempt to reach this place to transcend their self or whatever. Some people are on the stock market trying to make a million dollars, but that's there. Some people are playing sports to forget and get caught up but again it's all this even whether they know it or not it's this desire and one of the things that's interesting is that as beautiful as that allegory is i think it has its limitations like all allegories and one that's perhaps more perfect and we talked in, in earlier about 
the states of dreaming and sleeping and wakefulness. And the Prophet Muhammad has a hadith in which he stated, uh, men are sleeping or dreaming, and when they die, they wake up. And so in, in a certain sense, that analogy is more perfect than the reed flute because if, you know, we're in a beautiful garden and it's the wind is blowing, but there's nice sun and there's shade and the flowers and it's you're with your beloved and it's so peaceful that you decide to take a rest. You fall asleep and all of a sudden you enter into a dream world where you meet people and places and you have a life and you have experiences and very soon, like we all do every night, you forget about that garden you're in. But the interesting thing, and perhaps why this is more perfect, you could say, is that you never actually leave the garden. The, the dreamer is still there. Just like in your bed at night, you never leave your bed. It's all within you. So you could say, in a sense, that that's a more perfect analogy because the reed flute never actually leaves the riverbed. Yes. In that sense. Correct. There are many analogies. Mm-hmm. We also say that to teach about that which has no location, which is beyond time, beyond space, beyond comprehension as an object, as the very because it is the very nature and the truth of the subject, we use words that imply the meaning, that take you to the door and knock on the door also. But in fact, it is none other than you. So really, that's all it is. So we, we use the word lakshya, implied meaning, not the direct meaning. So the direct meaning, I am God, it will never yield any anything other than a headache, you know, when you look at it. <laughs> so therefore, we look at the implied meaning, you know. So that is what, the, for this implication, to, to, to come home, there are many methodologies, like the three states of experience, you know, cause and effect. Effect is non-separate from the cause, cause is not the uh, effect. Anvaya and Vyatireka, meaning, meaning the law of... Uh, invariable concomitance, you know, wherever the sleeper is, you know, I am, wherever the waker is, I am, wherever the dreamer is, I is. So I is unchanging, waker, dreamer, sleeper keeps changing. So the I is again, you know, revealed as the unchanging. So this is an invariable thing, we have to have lakshya. We have to have lakshyartha, meaning the implied meaning. And for that implied meaning, we need allegories, stories, and ways of teaching, mm-hmm. pedagogical tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting what you said, because Rumi has a poem where he said, I was knocking at the door. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of the beggar at the door of, of God. Please let me in, let me in, let me in. I'm weak, I'm in need, I'm poverty, I'm, I have nothing, let me in. Oh God, oh God, you know. And then he said, and then finally the door opened. And I realized I was knocking from the inside. Yes. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. That's why, I don't know, uh, yeah, you were there for that class where I said first half of the life is let me in and second half of the life is let me out. This <laughs> is our mantra. <laughs> so if we look at you know, the average American, if you're like, what is Hinduism? They'd say, oh, that's they believe in like millions of gods. Um, so what would you say to that in relation to this emphasis when I'm sitting with you, all I'm hearing is that it's all one. It's all one. It's all this ultimate. It's all the transcendent source of existence, which 
resonates with me totally. What would you say, you know, to... Every Hindu says that. Right. Yeah, every Hindu says all is one. And because we know all is one, and because, you know, there is nothing that's separate from God, everything that is here, the cause, the effect is non-separate from the cause. So the, the so-called effect, this jagat, this world has come out of the cause and as though projection, just like you in your dream. And so this projection is non-separate from, from, from the one who is in charge of the, who is projecting, who is doing the projecting. And so in this projecting, this, you know, this non-separateness is understood by all Hindus. That's why they don't really worry about going to this temple or that temple. In fact, we have a very sophisticated understanding of prayer. So we have deities which are called devatas, which is the law. You see, we see the whole thing from three standpoints. It's actually very nuanced. One is from the standpoint of, we talked about this in earlier classes, Adhyatmika, centered on me. Adhi Bhautika, centered on the elements. And Adhi Daivikam, centered on laws and things that I cannot control. Centered on Bhagavan, Ishvara, God. So, from the stand, like if you just take one example, air, you know. So, from the standpoint of when it enters my nostrils and is transferred into prana, Adhyatmika. So the air is filling the lungs and so it's no longer air, it's prana, it's my life force. Hmm. You know, so that's what I call that air. And from the standpoint of the elements, it is air. Still it is Brahman. Namaste Vayo, Tvameva Pratyaksham Brahmasi and Prano Vai Ishvaraha. These are all statements from the Upanishads. Everything is Brahman, everything is Vayu. And from the law that connects the outer air, Adhi Bhautikam, to the Adhyatmika, to myself, which is the, the, the one who is breathing, there is a law. Because what makes the air come out once it has gone in? <laughs> you know, it can say, what has this idiot achieved? It could tell me, you know, what has this idiot achieved? Nothing. And so I'm not coming out. I'm going to sit tight in the lungs <laughs> and finished, you know. But it comes out because there is a law. And when it doesn't come out, then also there is a law. And that law which connects the individual to the, the, the world of the elements, to the Jagat, that's called Adhidaivikam. That is what it is and that's what is we call Ishvara. So if there are any pranic disturbances, they, we, we, we can pray to God from the standpoint of this air. So if there are speech disturbances, we, we pray to the, the or eye disturbances, this is a better example, eye disturbances. We, we, there is a mantra that invokes God as the sun. Because of the sun, we see everything. Hmm. So you see, it's a very sophisticated. So for the sake of prayer, for the sake of relating, because you cannot relate to the formless. The formless is understood as you. And to relate to the formless, you know, you can't. You cannot, you can only relate to the formless as you. And you cannot pray to the formless. Prayer is itself a form. When you say hi, it's a form. When you say bye, it's a form. When you wrap a present carefully, even though you know the person is going to tear it apart, it's a form, it's an important form. We are not shy of forms. So we also say that there is one, you know, non-changing, you know, ultimate reality that we call Bhagavan, you know, Vishwara, Brahman, all those in a way, you know, if you just go beyond all that, it's, it's the small, small differences, it is still, they are all synonyms. It's just right. that. Yeah. So from the... the, the the highest perspective, there's one. Yes. And then 
as far as you could say, as this, um, the cosmos manifests, yeah. it's an interplay of the various attributes of, of the, the attribute list. Of the attribute list. Yes. There you go. Yes. And so these attributes are represented. So-called attributes. So-called attributes. Yeah. Okay, language fails yes. when we're discussing yes. the ultimate. Um, that these are represented, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, by the various deities. But there's various aspects of the Supreme. No. Mm-hmm. Because if we say aspects, then again, the impartite, we are making it into parts. True. I won't say they are aspects. I won't say they are denominations or hierarchies. They are that ultimate reality invoked from the standpoint of a particular form and function to mm-hmm. which I need to relate because of Beautiful. my own helplessness, mm-hmm. because of my own want, right. because of my own sense of lack. Right. So, and that is very nuanced. Every Hindu going into the temple, they know that I'm this, this, uh, you know, icon is not a representative, you know, it's, it's, nobody's praying to the icon. Mm-hmm. Nobody's do you know, to talk about idol worship is idol talk. Mm-hmm. We don't do idol worship. Yeah. <laughs> we worship God. We worship Brahman. We worship Ishvara. We worship that which has no name, no form. But you cannot worship no name, no form. So we need a form to get to that formless because and the idea also is like that you know like a child is raised in the tradition you know with stories just like any child in any tradition you know there are stories there are ways of relating and all this is to be able to see the formless as yourself it's a preparation Hmm. yeah that's beautiful because if you think of so say you as a woman you're a human being but you could also be a daughter and a mother right. and a teacher right. and uh, all these various roles. A- aspects, but it's the same roles. roles. Yes. yes. And, you know, that's often how it's taught within our tradition because we have the 99 names, mm-hmm. which 99 is even representative of infinite, the idea yes. that the infinitely named one. Yes. And, uh, you know, at certain times, you'll invoke different names. So if you need patience, or you're caught in traffic, and mm. you say, Ya Sabur, Ya Sabur, sabur yes. which is the patient one. Correct. Sabur. And um, also, you know, you mentioned the sun. One of the names of, of Allah is Nur, yes. which means light. Right. Ya Nur, Ya Nur. And um, the most commonly repeated ones are Rahman Rahim which are the beginning of every chapter, yes. compassionate, compassionate and merciful. So these are seen as almost, and you can say almost, but again, like very near to the essential attribute, right. like, as if you were to put them in a hierarchy. Yes. Um, and then there's ones that you probably wouldn't evoke because like Al-Qahar is the overpowering, where there's names of like wrath and destruction, yes. which... You have like Kali, right? Kali is one of the deities that is Kali. often represented in that way. So anyway, um, it seems to me that, again, from this, you know, it's not a stretch, too far of a stretch to say essentially we're saying the same thing. Yes, we are. And, you know, and perhaps only, you know, the people in this room will agree to that. <laughs> you know, and that's okay. Right. <laughs> Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm fascinated. I don't know too much about it, but I wonder, 
you know, when the Sufis first came into India and there were these, you know, masters, these gurus, you know, what that exchange was like. And I'm sure there was a lot of exchange and discussion and interaction. Yes, I, 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 I'm, I have no doubt about that. Mm. And when you go to India, you will see that Sufis and Vedantins are, you know, nearly identical. Mm. There is no, you know. Mm. And in a way, uh, you know, Indian Sufism has a certain flavor mm. that I am, you know, very eager for you to discover. I hope to. I have to come. I'll visit you in India. Yes. And visit the Sufis. Yes. Yeah, India has always been a place that I wanted to go and I... I uh, I, I never have and it's interesting because a lot of the elders in our community um, you know you talk about the counterculture movements of the 60s and 70s which create you know created this turning east for spirituality and this great interest in Indian uh, spirituality and Vedanta and yoga um, and especially you have all these people you know doing LSD and coming in contact with all these transcendent states and wanting to understand what that is and not having a framework for it and we're in Berkeley, so it's like the center of a lot of that. You know, what happened is a lot of these people in the 60s and 70s, they wanted to go to India, you know, following like Ram Das, Richard right, Alpert, and things. Right. And so the way to get there in that time, the cheapest way, was to you go on a big boat, like a freight boat, and you can, you know, pay, a f you know, $50 to get in one of the rooms and you bunk with everyone and you go and it would take you to, I believe, Istanbul. And at that time, there was the Oriental Express, the train, which would take you and you would go through Turkey, through Afghanistan, through Pakistan, Iran. And it's interesting, those are all Muslim countries. So I know some of my elders and some of my teachers, actually, who they were going to India to find a guru. And a couple of them, they didn't even actually end up getting to India because they had they met profound masters within the Sufi tradition in Iran or in Afghanistan mm -hmm. or in Pakistan. They just stayed there, and it's, it was interesting. And I know another one who actually went to India and he had a guru, and and then he had a profound experience at a grave of a Sufi saint, and he went back to his guru, and the guru said, "You're supposed to f f go with that lineage." And that, you know, I don't know how common that is, but I f I find that the open-mindedness within the Hindu tradition for other traditions. It seems like there's room for other traditions. There's room. It's beautiful. Because there is no other tradition. Really. Yeah. It's all one. Yeah. Yeah. And another aspect that I find really beautiful that for whatever reason uh, isn't as common now in modern uh, the Islamic countries that I've been to is that it seems to me that Indian religion, Indian spirituality has a very strong honoring of the feminine and a very fem feminine spirit and the, there's a lot of female teachers and you had that always tradition within Islam but for whatever reason now it seems rare, rarer and there's a very strong kind of patriarchy that um, that is at, at present for whatever reason but I just I really feel that that's beautiful um, you know, and I think it's, it's it's important for not only women, but for young men to have, you know, contact with teachers that are women, just to be whole, you know. It's, 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 it's same. Yeah. And Dr. Rita is an expert on that. Right. Yeah, the divine feminine. And mm -hmm. that is something which is 
very unique because we see the Lord as both mother and father from the standpoint of the creation and the created universe because creativity is something, you know, feminine is associated with a quality that's feminine. So we say she from the standpoint of creation, from the standpoint of that knowledge, we say he. But really that's just for us. Mm-hmm. It's neither he nor she. But we sure. say but for the individual to invoke, it's helpful to see it as the mother and father of the universe. Interesting. So that's the most common way of that's invoked. Yeah. I was at a interfaith dialogue long back, 15 years ago. And uh, uh, myself and my teacher were there and we made a plea, a suggestion to say, let us look, because we are making resolutions at the end of this conference, when we said, let us say that this is the, the Global Peace Initiative of Women, which is 15 years old now, so this was 15 years ago, ago you met Dina. Yeah, so, you know, we, we just sat there and uh, my teacher made a proposal and asked me to write it down that we invoke God both as father and mother of the universe. Oh, everybody had a fit. All the Abrahamic traditions, they had a fit. Mm. They said, absolutely not, God is father. But my question is, how can the formless one have a gender, Mm -hmm. much less a location? Mm. But this is, again, like I said, we have to evolve to see this. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. Islam is unique in the Abrahamic traditions in that you never call God father. Muslims never would. But also, mother, so it's... But... When you get, so you talk about the supreme as just beyond Mm -hmm. gender, but the names, there's the Jalal and Uh Jamal. So there's the 99 names, Jalal and Jamal, which is similar to yin and yang. So Jalal is like majesty and Jamal is beauty. So some, so half of them are basically, you could say feminine, and half of them are masculine. Very beautiful. Um, But the Sufis, they often would talk about God in the poems as Layla, Layla, which is a f- woman's name, but it also means night. Right. This idea of the, the the divine as enveloping everything into oneness, like the night, yes. whereas the day is multiplicity. So Layla, and also that that law that is means essence, D H A T that law, and it's feminine. So that as a, this, and also. Interestingly enough, the two names most repeated of, of, of Allah are Rahman and Rahim, which are feminine names. Feminine names, yes. You know, Rahim is actually the word for womb in Arabic. Mm. So this, so that this this idea of the womb, uh, as you know, and God having that connection to the, the creation, just like the mother to the child. You know a lot. We are well studied. I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I'm just yes. learning, and I'm honored to sit with you and to learn from you. Yeah. It's been very beautiful and the, the kind of strange circumstances that brought us together it makes yes, me, makes me smile inside yeah, no, yes. none of it's strange but I thank you for your time your valuable thank you. time thank you for and this conversation uh, and this very enjoyable dialogue alhamdulillah. which thank is always to be continued right? There's always no to be continued no beginning. alhamdulillah, yeah. thank you very much thank you, thank oh, you. that's it assalamu alaikum and namaste <laughs>